Hi, I'm Craig Turner, host of the Founders for Good podcast. I've spent years working in the tech for good space, and in that time I've had the privilege of interviewing inspiring impact founders, and I want to share those conversations with you. Why? Because these are the people leading the way when it comes to solving the world's most pressing issues, from climate to homelessness to health to education and much more. In these conversations, I dig into why these issues exist, possible solutions, how the founder and their business is approaching the problem, and their best kept secrets on how to build a for good company. My hope is that this will inspire you to be part of the solution and do your bit in making the world a better place. Thanks for tuning in to the Founders for Good podcast. Felix Atkin is the CEO and founder of Sharesy. During COVID, Felix started to explore why local schools weren't renting out their own new spaces to generate much needed additional income. Most all took bookings via pen and paper, on average requiring 30 interactions before a booking was completed. This was frustrating for both the venue and the booker. Felix also recognised this was a much wider problem with community spaces. Church halls, scout huts, community centres, they all had unused spaces they struggled to rent out. Enter Sharesy. In a few simple clicks, people can find and book spaces in their local community. Their unique model operates on a success-only basis, so venues can sign up for free and only pay when a booking is made. Sharesy are on a mission to help local communities to thrive by encouraging people to book local venues and put money back into their community. Hey, Felix, thanks for coming on the show today. How are you? Very well. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. So look, um, today we're chatting about Sharesy and empowering community venues to thrive. Um, and I was hoping first you could just talk to me a bit about the story of like how, you know, how you became aware of and interested in community spaces, because I was kind of looking at your backgrounds, very much kind of focused on kind of commercial strategy roles in a variety, but mainly large businesses. So couldn't see the crossover. <laughs> Can you talk me through that? Yeah, that's fair enough, because I don't have a background in event management and so on. My wife is a, a deputy head teacher in state primary schools, and my kids are primary aged. And I could see the need for small schools, state schools to generate a sustainable income. So I was just trying to address that particular problem. And Sharesy really actually started out as a social enterprise. I was just trying to help some of the schools in our local area. And it really developed from that to try and help more broadly across all sorts of different community venues and really try and do that at scale. And and next, as you probably know, I like, always like to explore a bit more about like context and, and the landscape of the space you operate in. So you talked about schools there and then you talked about kind of other venues. Could you give some insight into like what are the types of venues that you see within like a community space and like how they what, what kind of bookings are we seeing? Like what how are they being used? I mean, the concept of community spaces is really very broad. And this also isn't new. People have been hiring out church halls and school halls for decades. And, you know, they're managed with pen and paper and people paying in cash or not paying at all and just coming together and using local spaces. So the problem is that it's difficult to find really nice local spaces. And then it's really difficult to actually get hold of someone to be able to make a booking in one of those types of spaces. Quite often, they're managed by a volunteer. If you're talking to a school, they're incredibly busy just running the school. So trying to generate an income from a school hall is an additional benefit. It's not their main focus. So thinking about how you can reach those people was the initial problem. But then this is really quite broad. So there are um, church halls and community centres and scout huts. And, you know, there, there can be all sorts of underutilised spaces in your local community. 
the concept behind Sharesy, the whole mission of Sharesy is encouraging people put their money back into their community. If you want to meet up, if you want to have an event, then you could be supporting a local community venue institution and supporting local. Definitely. You can't see me, but I'm like smiling over here because I've definitely had that pain point of like as a parent trying to find somewhere for my kid's birthday party and you you kind of drive past these local spaces. I wonder what how how much that would be or like how to get that. And you can spend hours on Google trying to find an email address or a phone number, then trying to get hold of that person, then figure out a way to actually pay them. It's quite quite a hassle. Um, So that's definitely kind of explaining the, the pain point from like a consumer perspective. In terms of the venues themselves, you obviously mentioned the huge benefit here of like an additional revenue stream. What have been some of their challenges from like an actual, like them not hiring out the space more already kind of thing? Like what's been the barriers for them finding more people to use their spaces? So a a big problem for community venues is having the time and the, maybe the know-how to be able to market their space, to be able to create a good online presence and then to think about actually how they manage that journey. So quite often they're speaking to people over the phone or someone's coming into the venue and having a conversation. They're going back and forth talking about what the person might need. Then they have terms and conditions. They might have lettings terms to be able to agree. They have to take a payment, uh, which quite often is in cash or by bank transfer. Then they may be rescheduling another issues around the booking itself. So we did an audit and we found that actually there are over 30 interactions with a booker for every event. And many of those then don't go on to complete the booking. So it's a huge time sink for the venue to be able to manage those interactions back and forth. And, you know, booking a space, the online experience, what we're now used to with Airbnb and booking.com and all the other marketplace businesses out there are that you know, we're now accustomed to be able to go online and to make a booking and it's instant. And that's the experience that you expect. In this space, in the community space, you know, in many cases, it's still that same old experience of having a conversation by phone, calling back and forth. You might make 10 phone calls just to even get someone to pick the phone up for you. And so what we've now created with Sharesy is the ability to find a space, discover a space that's suitable for your need understand everything about that space and and, um, its availability to be able to make a booking and the whole experience can take a few clicks. So there's such a transformation that the feedback we've received has been just overwhelmingly positive. But of course, it's not just about having a good online experience. It's also about our why. And, you know, what's so exciting about the conversation that we're having is about why this whole business matters so much to me and to us as a company, why we're trying to support community. And what's been very nice is that that really resonates with the bookers that are coming to our platform. They love the idea that they're able to support their local community. They're putting their money back into local. That's really resonated with them. I can, I can totally imagine. And because I, I, I'm also assuming that before Sharesy, there wasn't really a solution for this. Like I imagine a lot of venue booking platforms are really geared towards the high-end corporate much more profitable if if i uh, guessing like type of venues than than the local church hall or school hall yeah i mean there are plenty of softwares out there so you know churches have plenty of softwares that manage their availability for their services and for people to make donations and things like that 
with schools, there's actually quite a big market for hiring platforms and hiring services that can work with schools. And they do a fantastic job of supporting some of those schools, but they tend to focus on the larger schools, the bigger secondary schools, private and grammar schools that have either a big budget to play with or they have an established team that can then run that software and that works really well. When I was looking at this space, what I discovered was that there was a huge portion of the market, like the vast majority of the market that wouldn't fit that profile. So there are lots and lots of community venues that simply don't have the budget They don't have the team behind them to be able to uh, hire out their spaces in that way and benefit from one of those services. One of the features of those services is because it is quite competitive, as with the SaaS world, you'll get locked into a contract, you have monthly fees and so on. So the terms are quite strict. So when I set up Sharesy, I was really keen to try and flip that model on its head and have really friendly terms to the community venue that doesn't lock them into a contract. They don't have to pay any fixed fees on a monthly basis and they just pay on a commission basis. So then we as a business would only get paid if we brought you bookings. So it's on a success base only. And that has worked really well. As a result, we just have a fantastic relationship with our community venues. There's no risk for them to start working with us, but also we have very, very low uh, attrition because they build a fantastic relationship with us. We're sending them through really high quality bookings and they're building a nice relationship with their community. And that ecosystem is now building up and and we're building trust in that, which is resulting in uh, lots of word of mouth referrals. And, um, you know, we have a very high NPS. Yeah, it's it's an absolute win-win for everyone. Um, And and one last, I guess, question on this or, or thought, like from a booker's perspective, Obviously, we're in a situation where we're in the cost of living crisis. Everything's going up, especially mortgage payments at the moment. Um, is it also like more cost effective from a booker's perspective, like using a local community space? Obviously, there's the the adding back, giving back to the community, the good feeling on that on that front. But also, like, would this po- probably be like a a cheaper option than some other op- like more high end stuff that they may have as like alternatives? So, absolutely, yeah. The, the local venues that we will work with will charge significantly lower rates than a big commercial space of an equivalent size. But we also enable venues to discount their pricing to any amount that they choose, all the way down to zero if they choose. So they might have a rate card for big commercial bookings if they were to take a, a filming or audio recording But actually, if they were to have a local AA meeting or a community group, a member of the congregation, they can discount that to any amount. Of course, the types of venues that we work with will often work with charity groups and they'll want to allow them to use their spaces for nothing. We don't generate a penny from that, but that's very much part of our mission, which is to encourage people to meet, to come together, to utilize the spaces. And that's where the word of mouth referral comes in. People talk about having a great experience, that the venue is supportive of them. We are supportive of the venue. And again, it's about building that ecosystem. Yeah, I really like it. Um, And then to talk about Sharesy then, so uh, you've you've explained what you do and how important your your mission is. Um, I want to take you back to those early days because you kind of mentioned how the idea came about and how you kind of stumbled across this space. where did you go from there? So you had this idea, 
Um, and I think this is around when COVID was like at its peak or around that point. Um, can you talk me through like those first six, 12 months? Like what were you doing? What was the focus? So I, I started the business in June 2020. So yes, it was the height of lockdown, which is probably a strange time to be <laughs> starting an event, an events type or venue hire type business. But I had a very clear vision for what I wanted to create. And, you know, as with a lot of these businesses, there was a bit of serendipity. I was introduced to our first two angel investors who had come from EdTech. We had a conversation where I explained the concept. Uh, we really hit it off. I didn't at that point have an investor deck or a business model or anything really to show for it other than I had a very clear idea of what I wanted to create. They sent me away to go and bring together some of those assets. And within weeks, they had invested and that gave us our first SEIS funding. When lockdown one lifted, which was at the end of the summer in 2020, we went live with a very early MVP of what Sharesy could become, which was effectively to be able to take a booking and to enable an online payment. And we immediately started taking bookings without any marketing at all. People were discovering it and were booking local schools in our area. And then, of course, lockdown two came along. So rather than slowing down, we went out and tried to raise half a million pounds of angel investment that would then en enable us to build a team. And um, so I went out to tap up my network, just cold calling angel investors and ended up raising £750,000. So overachieved on that target in just six weeks. So talking to angel investors, we were talking, you know, very experienced in tech investment, really understood what we were trying to do. But I think the mission really spoke to them. And um, that enabled us to close the round very, very quickly. So beginning of 2021, I now had some money in the bank that I was able to start hiring a team to start building our platform. And that took us through to the summer of 2021, when lockdown two then lifted. So in the middle of, well, it was around the end of July 2021. Uh, on the day that it lifted, I think it was the 19th of July from memory. On the 20th, we then went live with Sharesy and it just started growing from there. So it, it's been it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but I would say actually, ironically, the COVID period probably helped us to be able to step back from just focusing on driving sales, driving new venues coming onto the platform and trying to market to bookers. It meant in that period, we could just focus on our product. What is the platform that we're trying to create? What are the experiences that we want to enable? got lots and lots of feedback on that. And um, so we've managed to build a platform that has got just fantastic feedback and we've built it quite lightweight, actually. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, you said a roller coaster, but it sounds like some very clever decisions were made and timing wise, it really worked out with giving you breathing space at the right times as well. Um, I'm always fascinated with two-sided marketplaces because they're just so hard to get off the ground. And I know you said kind of like COVID, uh, sorry, lockdown one lifted and, and you were already getting booking straight away. I'm sure it wasn't <laughs> that, quite as simple as that. And, and in the background, there was more stuff happening. Like in terms of all those bookings happening, was it a case of having to get like a decent number of listings, like good venues listed on the platform available straight away? Or was it a case of 
creating the interest from bookers and having to go and find them spaces and you know a bit clunky on the back end but got things off the ground so with our very first mvp launch it literally was that we had a very basic product we were working with some local schools we asked the school we told the school that we were going to be going live on a particular date and asked them to just let some of the people in the community in their community know about it um but with no real marketing that was enough to generate some interest and we started taking bookings so the platform functionality was proven when we soft launched around summer of 21 by that point we had had a period of time to go out to more community venues in north london and to raise awareness of what we were trying to build we had no proof that we could actually make it work but we were telling them the story of actually how we're going to represent them online and the experience that would benefit them how we're going to reduce their admin efforts and how we'll give a really good experience to their bookers and we had a large number of local community venues take a punt on us and they joined the platform so when we were due to go live again we hadn't really done any paid we hadn't done any paid marketing but what we did do was we tapped up our networks we infiltrated whatsapp groups and we talked to lots of people in the local area and that's where we started to get word of mouth referral and the bookings started small we started with a few thousand pounds of bookings in our first month and then it started to grow and grow but it was a classic cold start problem like andrew chen's book on cold start you know it's all about moving into a local area really having no evidence that we're able to um, have impact but you start to give a good experience people start to talk we start to get positive reviews and it happens quite quickly the strategy has always been to be geo-focused so we stayed in north london with within that local area. And that really is the two-sided marketplace challenge. We needed local venues in an area, but then we needed to find local bookers to interact with those venues and to try and get that flywheel going. So we started in a very small area and really developed the concept of um, node saturation. So a node for us being a local authority, can we find enough venues in a local authority to provide choice to people in the area then people started to discover they had enough choice to be able to find suitable availability and the venue that fits their need and then they were able to have a really nice experience of going on and making the booking so once we started to get that working we'd proven that we could find good venues and there was demand for them and our platform was helping people then we had to try and replicate that and really that's been our story ever since has been moving into other local authorities, building a relationship with those local people and getting that flywheel going. We're now just getting to the stage where, you know, we're getting, you know, thousands of site visitors a month and we're getting you know, a bit more brand awareness so that people are talking to us. It's a, it's a very nice feeling when you go out and say, I'm working with Sharesy and they say, oh, we've already heard of you and I've had a nice experience here or this person has told me all about it. Um, so that that's really gratifying. Definitely. And, and I think there's um, the people I've had on the show that are building two-side marketplaces, they all start the same way. Like it's a simple but very effective strategy, like start niche, start in a small area, uh, re-dominate that, show it works and then expand out. As, as you start to expand out into new areas, 
what's like the i guess the the kind of like sales process and the reception from venues because i obviously Tech is great and it allows you to innovate spaces that have been broken um, for a long time and fix lots of pain points um, in, in a fairly simple way. Um, were you going to venues where you really had to pitch this because they're like, oh, you know, we don't, we don't get it. We don't really use tech. It's not something we're looking for. Or, or are they very receptive? Like, oh, actually, do you know what? This solves all of our problems. Like, definitely we'll, we'll sign up. The conversations that we have with our venues are often, um, they're quite mixed. So they might recognize that there's a problem, but they might already have a solution, which might be very manual, but it's sufficient for them. Then, so if you're talking to a school business manager, then they have such a wide remit. They're focused on so many different things that actually getting them to focus on one particular problem or having someone else come and solve the problem, they might perceive that there's just additional work to be able to get set up, get up and running. So the first barrier that we have to overcome is to show that we're able to start working with a school, for example, and very quickly take the, um, the heavy lifting off the school so that we're able to start having an impact really, really quickly. But I think historically, these types of venues get a bit of a bad rap. They're seen as hard work to deal with. You know, it's difficult, you know, um, trying to sell a commercial product into a school. It's difficult uh, speaking to maybe volunteers in a church for them to take on a new software. And you have to go through various levels of approval to try and have, um, you know, a new service agreed. And that's why our business model is so important that we are trying to really de-risk working with a, a, a service like Sharezy so that you can start working with us, you can very quickly start seeing the impact and the benefit of that. They build a very close relationship with our team and that then starts to snowball. So we tend to find that that's, um, you know, that happens quite quickly. But overall, you know, the challenge for us is always going to be um, when you're selling into a commercial business, you might be, be speaking to an individual that's able to make a decision for themselves. They might have um, authority and autonomy to be able to make a decision, whereas quite often in state schools or in other community venues, there are various levels of approval that they might need to go through. So we're always trying to solve that problem and make it as easy as possible for them to um, to make a commitment. Yeah, makes total sense. And like you said, you, you've removed the cost barrier straight away where they don't need to pay anything up front until they, they only start paying when they actually get successful bookings coming through the platform. I guess the other barrier to look at is like ease of onboarding, which is something that every kind of product builder has to has to think about very carefully. What, what are the steps a venue has to take to get like put onto the ShareSea platform? Like, is it case of like a couple of pictures, a short description? We've really invested in trying to think about that product journey. And we do many things that don't scale right now because we're really trying to understand the pain points at every step of that journey. So we will gather all the relevant information about a space. We will then build that listing page. And um, we can do that very, very quickly. And actually, there are many automations that we've already built into that process. We are at the point where we could fully automate that, but we're still choosing to handhold our venues through different aspects of that to make sure that they have a really, really good experience. So um, actually, it's very simple. We gather photos, 
we gather the basic information about the spaces. We've created um, some forms that a venue can fill in that are very, very simple to do. The end result is really pleasing for them because they see how nice their uh, listing looks online. We're often told that we are the best representation of their venue on the internet. You know, so they love the way that it looks, how simple it is to be able to navigate. And you only have to go onto one of our listing pages to see everything's laid out very neatly for you. You can see your availability and you can book. The entire experience can take 30 seconds if you know what you're looking for. So that is a very powerful story for them. Importantly for us, when a booking is made, the uh, experience from the booker is that you go on and you make a payment there and then in full. But the venue would then receive an email to say, you have received a booking from Felix, you know, on the 19th of August at this time. Do you accept or decline it? And they always have complete control to be able to decline a booking. So that element of control is very important to make sure that they feel that um, they know who's coming to use their space. They're going to be respectful of their space. They understand the rules of it. It fits the guidelines and, the, you know, their house rules. So that, that has been very important for us to build in and we get really positive feedback about that. A little break from the show. If you're listening and thinking, I'd love to work for a company like this, the good news is you can. Go and visit www.jobsforgood.io where they only have four good companies on their platform, ranging from social justice to food waste to climate change and much more. You can filter jobs by impact area, preferred way of working, skill sets, and find the perfect company and position for you. So if you do one thing today, check out www.jobsforgood.io. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, no, it's really interesting because like um, very different type of product, but um, you know, we're building a job board over here. And um, there's that balance of like, obviously, the more you get companies to invest in building out their profile and telling them how great they are and you know, what benefits they have you can go quite granular but then the more you ask the company to do that up front the harder it is that's creating more barriers for them to sign up versus then actually from a, a candidate perspective looking or like a booker in your in your area the more information they have the more they can filter stuff by the more attractive it's them so it's always like difficult to get that balance of like level of information requested versus level of information you can display like right it's it's it is really interesting and it's about trying to understand um, exactly what is that individual trying to get out of that process. But we sometimes forget just when it's done really well, it just becomes very intuitive. And a great example of that is eBay. Just sometimes forget how easy it is. I, I listed something on eBay recently myself to sell, went on to the platform, created my own listing. I could edit all the, all the fields myself. I created the, all the information that someone would need to be able to buy the product that I was selling. And, um, I'm by no means an expert eBayer, but every single time they sell and they sell well because you're encouraged to put more information down. You want them to have all the information that they need so that they feel confident both about you as a seller, but also about the product that they're buying. Maybe you need to have good quality photos. If there's a small scratch on something, show it clearly, be really honest. So when we're showing our venues, we don't have a professional photographer come in with a whole lighting system to make the venue look um, unrealistically good. Because then if you arrive at that venue and it doesn't look as you see in the photos, you'd be disappointed. It's all about setting expectation. So in fact, what we encourage our venues to do is to take their own photos and we help them. We help them get the lighting right. We help them get the angles right. So you get a good sense of the space. 
And then they, when they arrive, it meets their expectations and they're really happy. Definitely. Definitely. Um, and just to talk about the revenue model for a, a moment, Felix, I know you already mentioned that it's um, like a commission based, like part of the part, like a booking fee per booking that that's, that's all people are charged. Have you experimented much with like how you incentivize bookings in the sense of like, I assume the preference from a pure business perspective is like repeat bookings. So if it's a yoga class, karate class, whatever it might be, if you're having a, a booker that's booking up 10, 20, 30 blocks with a venue at a time, that's a more attractive proposition than like a one-off kid's birthday party. Have you, have, do you play around the pricing in that sense or, or like um, the fees that, that apply or is it just a case of not really got to that level yet and we just, just want to get people booking great venues? Um, we, we definitely do uh, play around with the pricing. I mean, there are a few different ways to look at it. So from the perspective of the venue, we will be able to benchmark on pricing because we've got so many similar venues that we can look at and we can advise on suitable pricing. Because we're a commission-based business, then there might be a misconception that we're just trying to increase the pricing to increase our fee. And that's absolutely not the case. So it's in our interest to help the venue achieve the utilization that they're aspiring to. And if that means that they have to lower the pricing in some cases, then we will certainly advise them to do that. The um, So the pricing mechanism is actually, I, I should say, when we first started out, 100% of our bookings were one-off events. People were booking for a performance or a kids' party or a seminar. It was um, one-off. And having had a conversation with a VC actually quite early on, it was never our intention to take uh, funding from VC, but actually I got some amazing feedback from um, one particular VC who advised me to really focus more on recurring revenue. Think about how we can bring bookers into the venue and to keep them coming back. And now two thirds of our revenue comes from long-term repeat bookings where we have uh, providers, local providers, kids club providers, or taekwondo classes, choir practice, whatever it may be, booked up to a year ahead. So enabling the repeatability of the engagement with the venue has been very important, both because it builds a relationship between the venue and the booker. So they have a relationship of trust there. But of course, it also makes the calendar more predictable and their revenue more predictable. The calendar being predictable is very helpful for the venue because then when they're opening and closing, it's much easier for them to plan. And of course, budgeting is very helpful as well with the repeatability there definitely definitely makes sense and um I want to chat to you for a moment about product features um because i always find that when you're when when you're a founder or one of the founders and you have an idea in your mind and a problem you want to solve you have assumptions about the product and how it's going to be used and and what it needs to be i just wondered if you could share like what assumption you had about a feature or something users would want which has turned out to be very different or a feature that you never thought of that's made a massive difference to, to user experience That's a really interesting question. I mean, what I, I should start by saying what I have learned through my career is never to trust, trust my own judgment <laughs> about what some, someone wants from a product because inevitably I'll, I'll have got it wrong. Um, the one, so my, my product team will tell you that I'm a classic founder in that I'm always shouting out ideas about, oh, I'd love to be able to do this and I'd love to be able to do that. Um, and then they have to manage my expectations around <laughs> that. Um, 
one of the uh, principles that I always look to, that I always try to stick to is about simplicity. So wanting to keep the journey for a user and for the venue as simple as it can possibly be. So it's all very well adding new features in, but they can actually create confusion. They can actually degrade the experience, if anything else. And so what I want is for people, a booker, to be able to come onto our platform, very simply find suitable venues, and then to be able to make a booking very, very quickly and to feel confident of the booking that they've made. So I don't want anything to get in the way of that journey. Um, so when when we first started out, um, actually, we looked to really just to create a very simple way that you can look at a calendar, see availability, make a payment through Stripe, and that was it. And actually, the, the bones of that haven't really changed. So we're always adding small features about ways in which you can improve your search functionality, ways in which you can discover a venue, small features within the listing page. Um, one of the great changes that our product team made was in the checkout experience of actually just simplifying the information that you need to provide and just making it easy to convey what you need for your event and then to be able to check out, being able to add in Apple Pay, for example, so that you can just pay very simply um, or, or pay by Klarna. Small changes do make a great difference. Adding in the ability to receive reviews from a booker is also so powerful to get direct feedback and enable you know, peer-to-peer -peer feedback. Um, so small incremental changes but we're constantly innovating, constantly trying to add in new features. And a lot of it happens behind the scenes. So it's about improving our own productivity within the team. Which is the way it should be, right? Um, final section about shares, you're just going to come back to the funding piece, because obviously you, you, you touched on that earlier. Um, one, how quickly you raised money, uh, which is probably a record of some sort. Um, but first, just wanted to talk to you about, you know, you, you touched on the fact you had a chat with a VC, but the intention was never to go down that route. And I just wondered, you know, uh, it's probably not the common route in terms of like most people raise money from angels and then go down the VC route. You've, you've continued to stick with angels. What's, what's been the reasoning behind that? So I would start by saying there's an element of inexperience. When I first started this business, I knew that we needed to fund it, but I was learning at the time about actually what the suitable routes for funding could be. And um, I personally have had a very good experience with the angels who have supported Sharesy. We now have 43 individuals who have backed Sharesy. Every single one of them have come. Uh, every single one of those has come through a conversation with me and understanding what we're trying to achieve um very experienced investors and um you know really mission focused but the intention has always been to try and enable us to be as unencumbered as possible so that we can move forward as fast as possible and working with our angels we've been able to do that so that has that has been fantastic for me um i well i'm often speaking to vc to get advice and guidance on ways in which we can improve how we can scale our business and so on and i would never say never um we may very well find that we're looking to rapidly expand and that we would look to VC for a future round. Up until this point, the relationship with our angels has just been uh, fantastic though. And in each round, we've had angels that have then followed on to the next round. 
which has enabled us to keep that momentum. And really, part you know, I suppose part of the reason for working so closely with Angels is just because we have been able to. The fact that they have, uh, it's been relatively simple to be able to find Angels, um, get them excited about our concept, and the rounds have closed quickly. So in that sense, it's been, it's been uh, you know, a good approach for us. And, and the the overfunding that the 750k that you closed in six weeks, talk me through the the magic formula there. Was that was that actually the second time around having a very polished pitch deck, or was it a case of actually just getting a lot of good conversations lined up and and being able to very eloquently communicate what you're building? I suppose my learnings through the investment process have been to invest a lot of my time in the investment narrative. The deck, of course, is the face of that and making sure that it really represents the brand, it represents me, and that I can then tell that story in in an eloquent way, but also then having all of the objections handled. So, of course, with an investor, they'll hear an idea, they might get excited about it, but there's a big step to actually putting their money down and saying, yes, I'm going to back you. So the challenge is always, how can you remove those objections? How can you give them confidence about you, that you're the right person and you have the right team around you, the concept is strong, and also, of course, that you can scale it and you can give them a return. And that's, you know, that's ultimately what they're looking for. There is... Uh, you know, a little bit of a grey area with tech for good businesses. Um, You know, with tech for good, it's not a charity. We are a for-profit business that is trying to do good. And when I first started out with Sharesy, actually, I was told by some people that there was no such thing as tech for good. You're either a for-profit business and you're a commercial business or you're a charity. And I really believe that there is actually a middle ground where you can be trying to do good and you need to be commercially successful to be able to have wide reach and to be able to scale a business. So for Sharesy, we want to be able to support communities everywhere to enable us to reach communities in everywhere from John O'Groats to Land's End and potentially internationally, we need to make the business commercially successful. And to do that, um, we need to have funding to be able to build our team to be able to build our product and there is i think a very reasonable story around that so i'm actually really passionate about the whole concept of tech for good and you know impact businesses uh you know the the space that we're in is quite an unusual one so um but i think we're now starting to prove that first of all local people really do want to invest in the local area they want to invest in those local institutions. There's clearly a huge need. They're not getting the funding that they need. You know, so a huge proportion of state schools are operating in deficit. There doesn't seem to be an obvious solution for that unless you give them the tools to be able to generate an income themselves. So that whole story, I think, is uh, is a really important one. In the investment um, in the investment process, it's about conveying that and getting people really excited about it. Um, so. Long, long may that continue. <laughs> Definitely. And, and I think that's a really important point. Like um, with scalable impact business models, the founders that I talk to that are for good and for profit, which I 100% believe is a legit thing that exists, is, is where, you know, 
your revenue comes from doing good in the world. What that good may be will vary from if it's you know, helping people with their health, educating young children, um, helping local community spaces um, you know, make more money so they can go and do the things they're doing really well. Like When they're too ingrained, that's where good things will happen. I think where they're too in conflict, that's where there's a problem. Um, but all the, the tech for good founders I come uh, have on the show, that's that's the thing that they all have in common is they've managed to build business models where when they make money, it's because they're doing something impactful. A positive impact is coming from each of those transactions or where that money is coming from. And, and that's the scalable impact that that will come from that, um, which is the, the, the thing yeah. to, to nail down. Um, Absolutely. You know, our, our whole business model is around trying to generate a relatively small amount of money off a very large number of venues so and that's what's quite unusual so that's why we need to be able to create this marketplace and and um with scale will come uh, success hopefully and to talk about scale for a moment i know you said you started off in north london like how big like what what's the geographical area that you operate in now felix and, and like looking to the future like what are some of the plans you've got in place for shares in the next couple of years so we are now across london we have signed around 350 venues each of those venues has between three and five spaces on the platform and we're now getting lots of inbound requests for venues all across the uk so we were quite strict about not accepting venues outside of our core area for a while but now we are accepting venues from elsewhere which is really great to see uh, we hope to be across the whole of the uk within the next 18 months to two years and you know we have a plan to scale in that way but right now the focus continues to be to deliver a really really good customer experience on both sides of our marketplace so you know there's an element of wanting to scale but also wanting to make sure that we don't sacrifice anything in our in our user experience along the way yeah you've got to do it in the right way do you think that and if you can't share this and that's totally fine but do you think the the model of scaling out will be like picking off other big cities one by one around the country until you have enough mass in like key points and then you can open up to kind of everywhere or would it be like you know southeast first kind of work out from there the the, the honest answer is we are in those discussions right now and thinking <laughs> about what our plans look like so i can't give you a firm answer not not that i not that i wouldn't want to because actually i'm generally very open about uh, our plans our growth plans and, and you know and how we're how we're opening up to the market but we do find that we have venues coming to us all over the country, you know, in Scotland and Wales, even we're having conversations. So there, there is clearly a demand everywhere. And it's just a matter of when we open the floodgates. Cool. Well, keep me posted because I have my kids school, which could definitely benefit <laughs> from Chelsea. So let me know. Um, to talk about your personal journey for a moment. Um, obviously, you've worked in a range of businesses, also startups before you did Chelsea. Um, and so kind of very broad and deep business knowledge. But this is your first time, as I understand it, as a startup founder. Um, what's been your biggest like lessons learned as a startup founder in the last few years? What weren't you expecting? What's been a shock? I've always been in quite broad roles in uh, throughout my career. So I've worked in strategy roles, in product and proposition development, in partnerships, where I've had to work across organizations. So having that breadth has always been quite comfortable for me. But it's a different world when you're actually running a startup 
and I'm responsible for the legal documents. And it's my name at the bottom of those documents and responsible for our cash flow and our fundraising and building the culture of the team and setting the vision for the company and actually then operationally involved in different aspects of the business as well, where I'm always speaking to our our venue partners and speaking to our bookers. It's just so broad that, you know, when you're when you talk to entrepreneurs about their journey about starting a business they'll say yes you know you kind of do a bit of everything you have to be an all-rounder but it's really eye-opening and being able to being able to context switch from vision to the day-to-day or being in a conversation with a venue and trying to solve those problems or someone might be trying to make a booking and they're having trouble and really being being in the minutiae is very challenging. And of course, the way that you get around that is by putting a great team around you. I'm very fortunate. We've got an amazing team. Uh, we, we, we have um, real experience now in every aspect of the business and we have a lot of trust and we give a lot of autonomy to every member of the team. We could only survive if we did that. But of course, I've, you know, uh, there's been a lot of learning for me as well and changing the way that I work. Um, it's been just before I started Sharesy, I was um, very lucky to receive an offer to do an MBA. And uh, I turned that down thinking I would rather get into a business and learn by doing. And it feels like it's been an amazing journey for me. It's been such a steep learning curve. I feel like I'm still right at the beginning of it, but it does feel a bit like an MBA. It feels like you have to learn in, in every aspect of the work that you do and there's real jeopardy if you get it wrong there's a lot at stake so um i would you know if you if you're if you're thinking about getting into that world you really have to think carefully about it but it's incredibly rewarding and, and do you ever think back and think i wish i had co-founded this business because it, there's a difference being a sole founder where it all kind of lies on your shoulders and there's just a limit to how much you can share with your team sometimes versus when you have a founding team there are others that have the same if you get it right, at least the same level of like buying and passion and commitment to the business. Do you ever think, oh, <laughs> should have co-founded? I feel very fortunate that I have an incredible team around me that I really do feel are um, very embedded in the business, very committed to what we're trying to do. Um, and so I do feel like I actually do have a very strong founding team around me. My first two angel investors, Samantha Tubb and Rich Harley, were a bit like co-founders in that first year as well. Uh, Sam has stayed on our board, and she's the first person that I'll call in a crisis. Whenever we have really good news, she's the first person I call. So I have fantastic people around me who can give me mentoring and advice. I have an amazing um, FD. Uh, Lawrence, who I actually went to school with, and he has brought real knowledge to our team. And again, you know, I just feel very fortunate. I've got really solid foundations in our team now. There are advantages, I'm sure, to co-founding a business right from the very beginning and having a bit of a split of skills. It's quite common that you have one tech founder, maybe a marketing and a commercial person, I've had to, uh, I don't feel like I'm a master of any of those things. I feel like I'm the person that kind of brings it together, brings brings people along on the vision. I'm very passionate about the work that I do, but I also know where my limitations are. And so I'll lean on the team a lot. And 
you really have to do that. As we're now through that period of the very early days where we were extremely lean, we've now got this solid team around us. So, uh, you know, in a, in a very different place now. Nice. But it sounds like, again, you've made some very clever decisions with making sure that you have the right balance of people, people that will enhance the skills that you do and don't have, and that you have the support mechanisms um, around you when you need them. Um, I guess to talk about the people side of things for a, a second and like hiring, um, I'm sure you've got your own war stories, but like what, what some have been, it sounds like you've got some great people now. Has that always been the case? Like, how have you approached hiring? What have been some of the lessons learned on, on that front? Yes, I really do think we've got a great team. We have had some people that have come and gone, as with any business. The real learning for me has been to deeply understand a role before hiring for it. So the mistake that maybe we made early on was hiring to solve a problem, hiring for a particular function without really understanding exactly what it is that we want that function to do and how it's going to operate in practice. And a good example right now is that we don't have a, uh, so we're missing one person in our sales team. And we've actually changed up a lot of the way that we do things in our sales process, the way that we manage our pipeline, the way that we manage our discovery about our venue partners, the way that we take them through to onboarding. We've changed a lot of that. So. I have actually put myself into one of those roles. I'm actually acting in one of those roles alongside my day job. But what that's enabling me to do is to really understand it so that I can empathize with that team. I can be in it day to day. Now I really understand what I'm hiring for and we will go out and we will hire for that, uh, for that role at the appropriate time. We've also found that our process has been to work with, um, there's a woman that we work with called Jess, who's based in Barcelona. She has become our uh, internal hiring manager, effectively. And she has handheld our applicants coming through the process so that we can then have a, a process that we've devised ourselves, really, where we have various stages of interview meeting the team, cultural checks, skill checks, and so on, so that by the time we're actually making an offer to someone, we feel really confident that they're going to fit the profile, they understand our mission, they're really excited about what they can bring to the team, uh, and that they can grow with us so that uh, you know they, they make us stronger. 100%. And I think having that internal talent person is like really important. I mean, not everyone does that and you can, you have to prioritize which hires you bring in, but having that talent person quietly doors, like you said, twofold gives the great candidate experience and the external experience and branding that you want to have as, as an employer, but also internally helps upskill interviews, hiring process, systems, processes, all those good things that you need to, to put the foundations in. So it's scalable down the line. Um, probably down to the last couple of questions. So I'm going to pick out one, which um, I always like to have a nosy around the website and I, I really like the meet the team section because when you hover over a person's face, it brings up a, what I assume is a photo of them as a child. And I just wonder if you could explain the the kind of story behind that. Yeah, so that's that's probably another one of the examples of where I would say to the product team, I really want this. Can you make it happen for me? <laughs> and they would roll their eyes at me. But, you know, there's a playful element to the work that we do. We're working with community venues we're working in schools. We want to be an approachable team, but also, you know, 
um, this is something that really means a lot to us as individuals. And, um, you know, this is representing both who we are and also the people that we're working with. And for us, a big part of that is we're in schools. There's a bit of nostalgia about being in those, uh, being in schools ourselves. And so it was just a chance for us to be a bit playful with it. And of course, you know, that's, that's the same in our flat profiles as well. So we all, we all have our photos of us as kids and, it, it's really about taking every opportunity to bring us bring us together as a team, um, but also to enable people that are just meeting us for the first time through the website to get a bit of a sense of who we are too. Yeah, no, I love those unique little things. Um, I, I wouldn't want to share a picture of me when I was a kid. I had curtains and <laughs> it would be a funny picture to share. But um, yeah, I think come back to the community space and your mission. Like when I think community spaces, it's through the eyes of a child. Like when I spent a lot of time in those kind of spaces, it was when I was a kid at birthday parties at playgroup, whatever it might be. So I think there's also like that, that part that will resonate with a lot of people. Um, Felix, probably that's a good, good note to kind of end on. So look, it's, it's been such a pleasure having on the show. Um, in terms of people that would like to learn more about Sharesy, obviously the website will be in the show notes, but in terms of where you're most active on social media, like which platforms are best for people to follow you on? You can find us at We Are Sharesy on Instagram and Facebook. You can find us on LinkedIn to hear more about our team and as we're growing. Uh, so uh, please look out for us. Come and visit us at sharesy.com. You can look at some of the venues that we're working with and you know we're looking to expand quickly. We, uh, we welcome referrals for new venues coming to join us. And of course, look for a space yourself and support your local community. Well, thanks again for coming to the show and I'm, I'm sure we'll catch up soon. Thanks, Felix. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about the show. The more people we can get involved, the more hope we have for making the world a better place. This episode was brought to you by Craig Turner, produced by Jabril Al-Sahami and sponsored by Jobs for Good. Until next time. <laughs>